Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Colin. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be reviewing four more Paper Tees entries, as well as discussing some November TV news. But first, we have a little bit of an announcement to make. Yeah, we wanted to make more of an official announcement about our Paper Team mentorship that we had kind of teased to you guys before, but now we want to give you some more concrete details about this, so uh, listen closely. As you already know, we're going to be drawing our winner of the mentorship from those people who have submitted for our Paper Tees competition. Now, the winner could be anyone who has been read on air. They don't necessarily have to be the winners of each month, and that's the kind of pool that we're going to be drawing from and finally choosing our one lucky winner. So it's important to note that we are going to be closing submissions for Paper Tees at the start of March 2019. That's next year. Uh, the 2nd of March, I believe, is a Saturday. That's the final deadline for any Paper Tees submissions. So please, if you've been thinking about submitting, send your stuff in, get it out now, and then you'll be in the running potentially to win a Paper Tees you know, in a month and also go in the running for our mentorship. And closing out the Paper Tees segment in March allows us to review everyone who's submitted so far and has been read on air. That's why we're doing it earlier than when the actual mentorship will start. Yes. Yeah. We're going to take a month or two to go through all those submissions, make sure that we're finding the best candidate for this. And then sometime in the middle of the year, maybe May, June, that kind of thing, we will announce our actual winner of the mentorship. And then what's going to happen from there is that the mentorship segment will replace where a Paper Tees once was. And we're going to be guiding this winner through all the stages of creating a TV script, you know, TV pilot. We're going to go from the inception of an idea through to outlines, drafts, revisions, rewrites, through to maybe potentially even going out to producers. So we hope that this process and kind of shining a spotlight on it and making it public like that will be useful to our listeners who are perhaps going through the same process at home with your scripts. Absolutely. And we're still figuring out the exact format of what that mentorship will look like in terms of the podcast. And maybe it's going to be a regular segment. Maybe it's going to be a standalone episode on a monthly basis. Uh, the reason why we're not quite sure is because the mentorship itself is kind of an experiment. And I think that's what is exciting, at least to me, and I'm sure for you, Nick, as well, mm -hmm. uh, is to track the progress of this person. And we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. We don't know if that person is going to have to go through 10 revisions of a draft <laughs> or if it's just going to be this log line that's going to be reshaped or if we're going to have to switch projects or whatever happens. Uh, so I think that's part of the, the excitement for the mentorship. Totally. I think it's pretty ambitious. I can't think of any other podcast or service that has really tracked every single step of the production process or inception process of a TV pilot from idea through to wherever it may end up. So we're really excited about this and we, we hope that you are too. And as always, you can submit those Paper Tees teasers at paperteam.co slash teaser. It can be any TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, as long as it is, once again, a TV pilot teaser, uh, not the first eight pages of a feature. Yeah, that's important to note. We have received submissions that aren't actually teasers. They're just kind of like caught off halfway through the page or are very clearly not formatted to be a TV teaser. So make sure that you're putting in your headers of cold open or teaser and end of cold open and just making it clear that this is, is deliberately some sort of teaser and not just the first X pages of your script because it's much less likely to be selected and read on air if, if that's the case. And on that note, let's get down to it and review the four Paper Tees November entries. 
What is our first November entry for Paper Tease? So our first teaser is called Valkyrie by Jamel Northen. And here's the summary. A van pulls up outside a suburban house, and someone inside the van is watching a mother, Fiona, reading to her daughter, Athena, on the second floor. In the house, Fiona finishes reading the bedtime story as her husband, Nate, interrupts to wish Athena goodnight. Fiona and Nate have a tender moment outside the kid's bedroom, but a window shattering interrupts the two. Fiona gets a gun from her bedroom while Nate finds the origin of the sound armed intruders have broken into their house. Nate and Fiona shoot one of these intruders in the dining room, but not before Nate also gets shot. Fiona then has to rush upstairs and save Athena from another gunman. Fiona saves her daughter but gets injured and is bleeding heavily in the process. She goes to basically drop her daughter outside the window softly so that she can escape, but in the process she gets shot. So the daughter Athena takes off running, avoiding bullets being fired at her from these gunmen from the street, and then she runs into this woman in the woods who saves Athena and kills a gunman at the last moment. So what do we think about Valkyrie, Alex? Well, I did think it was well-written overall. Uh, The action is interesting and well-conceived. With that said, the overall conceit and story of what happens in the teaser is lacking some elements for me. For example, we're seeing a lot of that teaser through the eyes of the parents who don't really seem to be the protagonist of the pilot given how the teaser turns out. So I'd much rather see the events unfold through the perspective of Athena, who is presumably gonna be the lead of the show, mm-hmm. um, or at least one of them. She's clearly valuable in some way, uh, but I kind of wanted more of a sense of why she is that valuable to those people and kind of unmask that facade of the suburban life in the teaser against whatever horrible thing are happening in the background. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the, the aspect of the point of view of the piece, it does seem to suggest that we're going to be following Fiona and Nate and that they are our protagonists in the way that the story is being told. And then they kind of die immediately. Now I could see that being done deliberately in the way of, you know, a psycho kind of thing where you kill your protagonist and we realize, oh, wait, this is actually the girl's story. So I understand that in one way, but I also think it would have been interesting to explore it through the eyes of the girl and see these events unfold, you know, as a little girl being tucked into bed and then hearing gunshots and stuff going on. And we could still see glimpses of that. And I think that would have been an interesting way into it. So um, that's, that's an interesting point, Alex. Yeah. And I feel like, especially since this is such an important moment in her life, admittedly, she's going to be losing her parents to these gunmen and is going to try to escape. So seeing that through her perspective makes sense, at least for me on a story level, because you want to be in the shoes of this character. You want to be witnessing and living this horrific event through her eyes. So that way, throughout the rest of the pilot, if not the show, you're put in her shoes and totally uh, empathize with what she's going through. Yeah, I I think it also gives, like you said, more empathy and more fear and tension in that moment if the audience is living within the world of this little girl as these terrifying things are happening around her. Whereas, you know, the parents seem quite capable they're obviously some sort of like spies or government agents or whatever it happens to be. And so I don't feel as much fear or tension when we have these trained people running around with guns and dispatching people. Whereas if I was in the shoes of a little girl, that would be a completely different story. And I think that would be more gripping and pull a reader or a viewer into that. The action itself, from a conceptual level, I liked. I liked this idea of the set piece in the house and they're trying to escape and the girl runs away. However, the execution of it on the page at times to me was a little bit disorienting or confusing. Just the way that the action was written every now and then, certain things like onomatopoeia. I was unsure at times whether guns were being fired or people were being punched. There were certain words like blam and whap, and I couldn't exactly tell what was going on. Is this a punch or a bullet? Yeah, absolutely. I had the exact same notes, uh, not just on the sounds of the weapons and the impact, but also in terms of the logistics and the location. And even in the first paragraph of the piece, that idea of 
not quite delineating where the action is taking place is already present. So for example, the first paragraph describes this beautiful suburban neighborhood. And in the same paragraph, a sentence later, we talk about a male silhouette walks past windows on the first floor. But first floor of what? Obviously it's a house, but why isn't the house mentioned in the first place? So initially it's not quite clear whether we're looking at it from the perspective of this weird dude in this van, or if it's kind of this omniscient perspective, uh, this uh, exposition shot of the house. Um, So uh, you do get lost in the choreography of it. Yeah. I noticed that too at the end when Athena's running off into the woods and then there's this figure in there and there's also a gunman that's shooting at her. Every now and then I didn't know who was doing the actions. Was it the figure in the woods shooting someone or reacting or doing things like that? So I think just taking a little more time to be careful about situating the reader with you know the object and the subject and what's kind of going on here. Uh, another thing I noticed was kind of there was a lot of switching between a simple present tense and a present continuous tense. Now that's the difference between Athena runs and Athena is running. But we're kind of getting that that switch back and forth a lot in different sentences, and it feels kind of strange to me. We, you know, we have Athena's weaving, Athena takes off running, house lights are coming on. I think it's just in general for screenplay, it's better to keep it as the simple present tense and then only use it as a present continuous when it's very important that the timing of an action is coinciding with another action. Like as someone is reaching for the gun, his hand gets blown off, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas if we're just constantly in this present continuous, it's kind of like fatiguing and and we don't really know what's important. Absolutely. That's a great point, actually, especially when it comes to an action piece, you want to be in the moment and see those actions unfold when they unfold, not as they unfold in a progression, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, just to go back to the top of the piece, I did have one comment about this bedtime story. And specifically, I felt like the writer could break up this whole chunk of dialogue that appears in the first page, especially when it comes to a teaser where, as the reader, you don't really have enough of an emotional investment in the characters to really care about those bedtime stories. It's important to gain a sense of momentum so the reader can feel welcomed in the script and read on. I kind of compare it to this idea of you know gaining steam on a train. You may want to present texts as more easily digestible at first so that the reader can ease themselves into the read. I'm not saying it's always going to work. I'm just saying that in this case, I felt like the bedtime story didn't give me enough of content for it to justify this whole first page. Yeah, I I agree. Not only was the bedtime story kind of dense in the consideration of where it takes place in the script itself, but just for believability as a children's story, it felt a little bit overly complicated or the details that it was spelling out didn't feel to me authentic or naturalistic for how a children's story would be read. There are certain lines like, the knight walked out of the wreckage and passed the dragon's carcass armor blackened in places. Or one in particular that kind of pulled me out was, the prince tries to regain his regal bearing as he applauds the knight. Like that's just a little bit too overwritten, I guess, for a children's story. Like I think they're presented much more simply than that. And and that kind of pulled me out of the read a little bit being like, I don't know if a children's author would write in quite this way. So I think you, for the purpose of what the story is serving, all it really is, is here's something's happening in the room. They're reading a story to their kid. And the moral of the story at the end is that like women are kick-ass and that they're going to be great. And, you know, obviously the title of this is Valkyrie. So we're leading towards this belief that Athena is going to grow up to be probably some sort of kick-ass secret agent or mercenary or something like that. So that's all we were getting out of that in terms of the purpose of the story is 
here's something to happen while they're talking the kids into bed. And here's a little moral that's going to hint at what's happening in the story. So you don't need all of that extra detail in a children's story. And it, it drags, like you said, the pacing of the story down. And I feel like even if you do want to keep that bedtime story in the narrative, there's a way of making it compelling to the theme of the teaser. You can intercut what the bedtime story is to the action or have voiceover or intersperse the dialogue with some action to see how Athena or Fiona react to what is going on. Again, I think that as it stands, it's sort of this block of text that doesn't really warrant uh, its presence. Like Nick brought up, you can just summarize it as Fiona reads a bedtime story to her daughter, and that will be it. Like that, you don't really need more to it. But if you do want to add that thematic element to the piece, then tie it into the action. So what about some uh, micro notes stuff on the page that stood out to us? So we already talked about this multiple times in prior paper tea segments, but once again, I'll highlight the need for character descriptions. Both Fiona and Nate are described as mid-30s, which doesn't really give any visual as to who they are as people. I would also mention uh, the importance of capitalizing characters, especially the intruders in the house. So we know the logistics of who they are, where they are, what's going on when there's a new character appearing in the scene versus someone we've already seen before. Also, at the end of a teaser, there's a new character, a woman appearing, and in the dialogue, she's named Margaret, even though the character of Margaret has never appeared before in the prose. So that's another thing to look at. Yeah, for me, there was just one little thing that stood out a couple of times. It's either a typo or a verb conjugation issue, but sometimes when you're dealing with singular versus plural nouns, you need to make sure that the verb lines up with that. So for example, we have broken glass lie by the door. That should be broken glass lies by the door. Even then, that's kind of a weird phrasing of it. I would just say there is broken glass by the door. And then another instance of that is another armed man stand right over him. That should be stands right over him. When it's a singular noun, then you have to kind of put an S on the end of the verb there. Otherwise, it sounds a little bit off. And so I noticed that happening a couple of times. I would have just thought it was a typo, but just making sure that we're conjugating our singular and plurals properly. And also one quick typo on page three, it's you're the coolest mom, not you the coolest mom. Maybe she's like, you the coolest mom. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I can definitely see a 30-year-old man say that to his wife. <laughs> All right, what makes us want to read on versus not? Well, I think there's a lot of interesting mystery and tension here, and I think that I'm very curious to see how Athena grows up. I'm assuming we're hoping on a cut to her being an adult so that we can follow her story from there. Not necessarily, but that's, that's kind of where my head goes, and just seeing what's going to happen. So I think there's enough interesting things going on that I would definitely be reading a few more pages and seeing if I, if I liked it. It's interesting that you went to a time cut. I didn't necessarily think of that. I imagine more of this young woman being raised as this spy in honor of her parents uh, through this yeah. mysterious Margaret character. But either way, like I said earlier, I feel like putting us in the shoes of the lead character would give us more empathy and bring this narrative forward. Right. It's it's obviously what the story is going to be about moving forward. So that whole point of view shift, I think, is, is a good key to take back. All right. What's our next one, Alex? Our next teaser is Together Alone by Tyler Jordan and Mark Anthony. And in Together Alone, which is a comedy, TV and Mark, two gay best friends, leave a bakery carrying cardboard boxes. The pair makes their way to the next door apartment complex as they awkwardly navigate getting inside. TJ has to dig into Mark's pockets to find the keys to the place. Once at the elevator, they bump into Joy as they dance around the neighbor with the boxes to let her pass. As the pair finally reaches the floor, they realize, wait a minute, this isn't the floor where they live. Awkward. What are your thoughts on Together Alone? 
So I think that this is a funny situation and it's an interesting scene for comedy, but to me, it sort of lacked some sort of story purpose or plot as a teaser. You know, this could easily be the scene in in the middle of a script somewhere where we know that they have a goal to get these boxes back to their house. And that's important because if they don't, they're going to get fired or something like that. But without any of that context and without us being invested in those characters yet, this is just kind of like a slapstick, really. And, you know, as funny as it may be, to me, it doesn't make the most effective teaser because it doesn't contain those elements of story in the same way. Yeah, I had the exact same thoughts. And even though I thought the situation itself was funny, and even the characters themselves can be funny, I wanted more on a narrative level. I think without any story or plot, it's just this weird uh, exchange of dialogue, then quips, which can be funny, but as a teaser, it doesn't really gain any momentum forward and doesn't really bring me at least to the point where I understand what's going to be the day-to-day on a narrative level beyond just these two friends quipping each other. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of the characters, I didn't get a clear sense of the difference between the two. You know, they they both have different names, and but they're just kind of quipping back and forth with roughly the same voice. And so I wasn't sure exactly what distinguishes these two. What are their points of view on the world? Why is there conflict between the two of them? They're best friends, but what don't they agree on? And that's going to give us a little bit more of a a true dynamic to the two of them that's going to make this show work. Once again, I had the exact same thought. Maybe we should be uh, gay best friends. <laughs> but to your point, I mean, the, the characters do sound the same, and they even say the same sort of repetitive bits of dialogue. For example, on the second page, the exchange is, my hands are full. My keys are in my pocket. My keys are in the apartment. You're going to get my keys. You're going to try a lot harder. It's a lot of back and forth with the same content. And there's not much of a perspective from either Mark or TJ and how they contrast with one another. I guess another thing to note is what are the stakes of this scene? Even if it is just a funny slapstick scene for comedy, why do we care whether or not they get the boxes in or they drop the boxes or they get on the right floor? You know, it's just a mild inconvenience. But if there's some particular reason why we know they're running late for something, or if they don't get this back in time, they're going to lose a bet or something like that, I think you need just some more context to give us that sense of narrative. And even in terms of the funny situation already present in the teaser, I did also want more of those moments heightened or highlighted. Uh, So for example, there's a glamorous woman appearing and it's unclear why she's here. I'm obviously assuming that it is to witness one specific awkward moment between TJ and Mark as TJ has his hand in Mark's pants, but that should be stated in the prose. You know, for example, she glares at them or some kind of added humorous element as to why she's in the scene. Yeah, exactly. That's another kind of like dynamic thing. It's like, what is the power dynamic between this Joy and these guys? Is she a neighbor? Is she the landlord? Is she uh, obviously not a love interest because they're both gay? But, you know, whatever that happens to be is going to add more to the comedy if we know something about her before or as she's being introduced into the scene. Any little micro notes on the page? This is a very tiny micro type of note on page one. At the end of the first scene, it says Mark kicks the phone box at TJ and misses and lands in front of, and there's a comma, without the sentence being finished, or, you know, an ellipsis, or something to transition into the next scene. Is there a character name right after it, or it's just missing? No, and lands in front of, and I'm assuming the of is the location, which is the apartment, not a person. Uh, However, the lands in front of, the sentence finishes with a comma. Right, yeah, you want an ellipsis, or a colon, or something there, or a hyphen even, you know, a dash. This is, I guess, 
not really on the page, but I noticed that the title is Together Alone. I just want to make the writers of this aware that there was a freeform show called Alone Together about two best friends who are like hanging out and doing stuff like that. So I'm sure you're probably aware of that. I don't know if that played any factor into the, the naming of this, but I think people will mention that if you're you know presenting them this pilot and they're like, well, how is it different from Alone Together? So just uh, be aware of that. Worth a mention. So what makes this one to read on? Well, I think the characters and the situation can be funny. Uh, I just think there needs to be more of a narrative drive to understand why we're watching these people right there. And right now, it's kind of the classic, why here, why now? And I don't really get a sense of that in this teaser. Yeah, I agree. There were some really funny lines. I think one that stood out to me was, can you wear pants that fit you when he's trying to like reach into his pocket and stuff? So it shows me that the writers can tell jokes and come up with good quips in there, which you know inherently makes me want to read on a little bit more. But I agree that we do need some sort of momentum. And just like I said, like narrative context for what's going on, why is it important? What is this show going to look like past the teaser? All right, moving on to our third teaser. All right, the third one is called Totally Human by Josh Naquin, and here's the summary. Uh, Zane, a good-looking 18-year-old boy, studies himself in the mirror while a woman off-screen asks him how it looks. We then reveal that he's actually talking to an alien lizard, and he is another one of this species, trying on a human skin suit in order to infiltrate our society. They send him down to blend in with an American college and begin his mission to study our species. He actually arrives on Earth inside of a Walmart freezer, and as he escapes, the hijinks ensue as he tries to find clothes and escape suspicion of these other humans with his limited understanding of our society. What were your thoughts on this, Alex? I really liked Totally Human. I thought it was a kind of a clever twist on the whole alien uh, landing on Earth thing that hasn't really been explored outside of the odd uh, Simpsons episode or odd Futurama episode. So making a whole show about the perception of what another alien thinks of Earth, obviously besides Third Rock from the Sun, which is probably the biggest similar concept out there, is still interesting because this is coming from a lizard species. It's not quite the same idea as Third Rock. So Yeah, there is is actually a pilot on Hulu that just got picked up called Solar Opposites, and it, it, it does have that kind of notion of aliens landing on Earth and blending into society. It's an animation Justin Welling from Rick and Morty is doing it. However, there are enough differences in Totally Human that it, it distinguished itself even from that because we're specifically sending this Zane guy into college and he's trying to blend in with freshmen. So we know that that's the arena of this story and this world. It's this lizard people species trying to understand human society, but then being thrown into this very particular niche of human society that's funny and relatable. So agreed. I think it's a, it's a strong concept. I also think that this pilot really tried to milk those humorous moments that, you know, we keep talking about in situation comedy. So for example, the moment towards the end where the cardigan mom is awkwardly staring at Zane as Zane laughs maniacally and points that out is kind of that situation I expected from the Together Alone pilot when I mentioned the glamorous woman. It's this idea of you do have those side characters and even tertiary characters that not only interact with the main storyline, but actually comment and bring up the humor. Yeah, and that in particular was a payoff from a setup earlier where he's talking on the, the lizard ship or planet or wherever they are about the, the evil laugh. So I think that's good uh, kind of comedy work to work in those setups and payoffs. And there were a number of really fun things like that. There was one where they're talking about how emotionless the species is meant to be. And, you know, he's like, that sounds like fun. And they're like, fun? And he's like, oh, I mean, I hate fun. I mean, I feel indifferent towards it. And uh, <laughs> so I thought that was a really fun joke as well. There were one or two times 
where I felt like we kind of tipped the joke a little too early. There was one where he's talking about why they're going down into college. He's talking about how he wanted to go down to a state school rather than a private school because obviously anyone who is willing to go through school and graduate with $200,000 in debt is afraid of nothing, which is a really good payoff at the end. But we tipped it too early by saying, you know, these students are so fearless that they will do X, Y, Z. And then the punchline was clearly they fear nothing. Whereas I think you just remove the fearless mention earlier and then allow the payoff to be clearly they fear nothing because it's the first time we're understanding the joke of here's the setup and oh, they're obviously so fearless that we shouldn't try to mess with them. Yeah, I did have one small bump in terms of the Zing character. Initially, he is described as generically handsome, which, you know, looking back does make sense. But you do have this contrast with how he looks and how he feels. Uh, so I would maybe heighten the human-like appearance versus his personality. Uh, now, I do like a lot the dynamic with the lizards, but my one micronote in that world would be to emphasize how Zane differentiates himself from the others outside of just having feelings. Because in my mind, Zane is kind of like Kip in Futurama. He's this weirdly meek and harmless character uh, that has empathy and fun. But then, as soon as he lands on Earth, he's willing to kill a human for warmth, which is kind of this weird, savage tonal <laughs> shift for him that took me aback. So uh, I would say, like, consistency on that level would be nice. Yeah, I agree. I did bump against the Zane character description as well. If I was just reading this as a regular human character, I would say that we're going a little bit too much into the, the personality aspect of things and repetitive as well, you know, secretly lonesome, aloof, striving to suppress his emotions, aside from the generic handsome thing then when we once we understand that this is a skin suit the generically handsome thing makes sense but like alex said i think you would just play into describing how human and whatever he looks and then maybe we can get a little bit more of the personality stuff if you need to after that it's almost like we're introduced to who we think is zane and then we meet who zane really is rather than lumping them all in together and then making us think about it and go back and be like oh now i understand that mm. also i think i said kip but it's kiff oh sorry uh, just a yeah. uh, clarification there do you have any micro notes for Totally yeah. Human? Yes, a couple of little things. At one point during the action, the lizard who failed at his mission, it says he freezes and then gets crushed or whatever. I think you need to make that clear that he's being frozen into like a block of ice because freezing could just mean stops. And to me, that wasn't particularly clear in the action. Same. That's uh, a good use of a literally freezes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally versus you know, figuratively. And there was just one thing right after we reveal that Zane was actually talking to this alien lizard person all along, which is great. There's then an extra little paragraph that's like, they're both members of a cold-blooded reptilian-looking human-adjacent alien race, all caps, exclamation mark. To me, that's a little too much. It's like kind of hitting it on the nose. For the reader, I think the previous sentence was clear enough. And to me, that's the kind of thing that just like bumps me a little bit where we're really being hit over the head with the reveal. I'll do the whole devil's advocate because I feel like we did give a note in a past uh, teaser where we did want that clarification of the premise. Uh, and especially coming from the perspective of you're seeing this guy trying on, we assume, a swimsuit, and then the reveal is that he's actually talking to a lizard. If that whole sentence were not present, I would probably at least ask the writer to highlight the fact that this commander is a lizard or some kind of emphasis. Yeah. So I didn't really mind that, but I, I get your point. All right. Well, here's the middle ground, I think. 
you can communicate the same thing without just writing the subtext as action. That's currently what that is. And I think that if you put that into more of the dialogue or into more of it coming out naturally in a way that a viewer is actually going to be able to understand that more effectively and clearly, then that's better than just spelling it out for the reader. You mean uh, you don't like the 50s? uh, It's an alien race. (laughs) (laughs) Big super up on the screen. But yeah, overall, this was very well written. So what makes this one to read on rather than not? I had a lot of fun. I think overall, it's a really fun premise. And I would want to read on just based on this teaser, because I think it's such a strong setup for the world, the comedy, and the characters that it warrants uh, a sequel, so to speak. Totally. And this is what a good teaser does, is, is it introduces all of the elements that you need to understand how they're going to be interacting on an ongoing basis and producing comedy and conflict. We've got this juxtaposition between an alien race being thrust into this world where it has to try and understand human society and we're already seeing how the comedy just bubbles up out of that. So yeah, I absolutely want to read on and see more of this interaction with the world and how that all plays out as a series. All right, and what's our last paper tease for this month? Well, the last one is called Gastland and it was written by Augusto Federico Amador and Diggy Singh. And in Gasland, Paco Rivera, 38, drives his Mercedes-Benz through an empty desert in southwest Texas. He drives from place to place, trying desperately to get an iPhone signal. There's a banging from his trunk, which we find out is coming from a tied-up hostage. The hostage pleads for his life, but Paco cold-heartedly shoots the man three times. Then, as he prepares to bury the body, Paco's iPhone finally rings. What did you think of Gasland? I think structurally, this resembles a good teaser. It, it kind of has this element of mystery to it. Why is this guy driving around trying to find a phone signal? And then, oh no, here's another twist and reveal that someone in his trunk. And then we have this big splashy thing of him shooting someone in his trunk and burying a body. So all of those things create enough conflict and interest to, on the face of it, have a, a solid teaser. Yeah, I agree. My one big note is that it sort of has the opposite issue than our first teaser, Valkyrie, in that I wanted more out of the situation uh, because, the, like you pointed out, the structure is already there. There's already a little bit of intrigue as to what is going on and why this man wants to find a signal. And then there's the reveal of the hostage. And it has a little bit of absurd Coen Brothers-esque feeling of the situation, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I did want more out of Paco trying to find a signal just because you can use that rule of three of maybe the first time he stops, doesn't get it. The second time he stops, doesn't get it. The third time he stops, that's when he doesn't get it, but there's the hostage and Mm -hmm. it's drunk. And that's when he finally gets the signal. As it stands, it's kind of just two moments that don't really build on top of each other. Yeah. And we've given this note a few times to teasers on here, and that's just to take some time to let the scene breathe and let it milk the most of those moments and the conflict and what's going on there. So I think that you could definitely take an extra page, page and a half and let that stuff play out more and also just give us a little bit more information. Now, I like the device of him trying to get his phone to ring. And then at the end, we have this fun twist of irony where after he shot the guy and starts to bury him, it finally rings. That's what I'm saying structurally on the face of it. That's great. But here's the problem. I don't understand the significance of the phone signal and the phone call. If I knew that he was trying to get orders from a boss or some information as to whether he should or shouldn't kill this guy or something like that, that would intersect a lot better with the kind of drama in front of us that's playing out on the screen. And then when it finally does ring, that's a payoff for like, well, I guess I'd have my answer now, but it's too late kind of thing. As it is, I don't know what the phone has to do with anything that's happening in front of me. And so it doesn't work quite as effectively. Maybe 
Eastern waiting for results on his Bachelor Fantasy League. <laughs> I did have one micro note just to continue on the structure of it all. I thought there was a little bit of wasted space with the transitions like fade in, cut to, which in 2018 isn't really used. Uh, but on top of that, towards the end of the script, the transition says cut to long shot, which is sort of like overly directing. And isn't really needed because the scene continues uh, from that dialogue. So it's not even a different scene. It's the same scene, but with this added transition for no real reason. And I guess one other thing that I would say about this is I feel like I've seen this scene before in Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul or any particular mob or crime TV show or movie. The situation of a guy driving around the desert with a hostage tied up in his trunk and then shooting him and bury him is at this point sort of a trope. So I need to see something a little bit more original and unique that shows us how this is different and what makes this show stand out as special and, and unique. So I think that there are threads and elements in there that could be used to distinguish it. There are some fun things that are hinted at, like them being on the same softball team. So maybe they work for the same company. This guy was a corporate spy or whatever it happens to be. But you just need to lean into something, whether it's the Coen brothers' aesthetic and tone of this dark comedy. So if he's on a softball team, maybe he left his bullets in the office and he has to use the softball bat to beat this guy to death. Or you know, just some other little element that's going to show how this is different from all those other scenes we've seen where someone gets driven out into the desert and shot and buried. Yeah, and I feel like that solves the issue of what makes us want to read on or not, is this idea that the elements are already present, they just need to be heightened and decided upon. The whole Coen Brothers' absurd humor is there, but if you bring it and move forward, and then if you heighten the uh, emotions and what is going on uh, with each scene, I think you know it can make for a compelling teaser that differentiates itself from this classic hostage in a trunk situation. Right. Right now, it's a very effectively and sparsely written teaser, which in general in screenwriting is great. But I think in this situation, you do have the opportunity to lean into it a little bit more and just give us a little bit more. More sometimes is better. But let's decide our November winner, and the winner will be awarded a free month of Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network, which is a $69 value. Nice. This month-long program will grant the writer one open pitch session, which they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their project to, a live online elevator pitch to three execs in an online roundtable setting, four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, one group pitch prep webinar with uh, literary manager Chris Decker, a fictional entity, and one interactive webinar with Roadmap's Creative Director on a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. So, who was our winner this month, Alex? Well, our winner for the month of November is Totally Human by Josh Naquin. Congratulations. Yeah, well done, Josh. That was a good teaser. So. What if Josh is actually an alien? <laughs> He's a lizard person who was yeah. sent in this teaser to try and infiltrate our uh, our screenwriting podcast. It's like three levels. Maybe he's going to be the winner of our paper team of mentorship. Who knows? Maybe. We'll have to do, do a DNA test first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into some news. Let's close out our Paper Scraps November episode with some important TV news that happened. All right, so the latest uh, big news in the industry is that apparently J.J. Abrams is kind of shopping around for his next overall deal as his current one with Paramount is going to be up next year and his one with uh, Warner Bros. TV. So he's looking for apparently a half a billion dollar overall deal from a studio. And that's to include everything from movies to TV to even like theme parks and attractions I think he's really interested in getting into. So uh, basically he's looking for an overall deal on an unprecedented scale that we've never seen before. 
Yeah, who's uh, who's JJ again? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's interesting to see all those big overall deals happening. I remember we talked uh, previously about the Shonda Rhimes deal and the Ryan Murphy deal, mm-hmm. and those are sort of the, those mega deals that are worth half a billion, if not now a billion dollar of an overall. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, considering that television especially is such a team sport that I kind of would want that money to be spread across all the people that worked on those shows <laughs> and uh, brought him uh, where he is now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you're paying for essentially a brand. You're paying for a name to put on your show, on your billboards, and for someone to act as a producer on this thing. But for the most part, you know, these people in the overall deals aren't in there doing the day-to-day show running of each and every one of the shows that are coming out over this deal, they're not, like you said, you still have to pay for the rest of production. So it's quite a large overhead to essentially say, look who we have, you know, we're special on these talented people want to work with us. Yeah, it's not to disparage the concept of overall deals or these people at all. It's just this idea that, you know, companies are spending half a billion dollars or a billion dollars on one single human being. Uh, to me, that's absurd in the world we live in uh, with everything that's going on in this industry and outside this industry uh, to spend that amount of money on you know the brain power of one person while still at the same time paying them for all the ideas as they should be. They should obviously be paid for all that, but just the idea of spending that amount of money as opposed to maybe helping up and coming writers or building diversity programs, anything else than spending a billion dollars on one person. I right. think that's where my struggle comes in. Yeah, I mean, there was that article a little while back. Did we talk about that, the struggling middle class of Hollywood? I don't think we did, actually. But yeah, that was a, a really good article yeah, that was, we'll link in the show notes. Yeah, there was a cool article that basically went over how it's becoming less and less feasible to make a living as a mid-level writer or an early-stage writer. You know, you've got, like we said, these giant mega deals where the people at the top are really reaping the benefits. And the people in the middle who don't have those kind of deals and safety nets in place are essentially kind of, you know, working four months out of the year and then struggling to make ends meet after that on what should be a pretty good livable wage. So like you said, it is a little bit almost reprehensible in some ways that this amount of money is being thrown at a few people in the industry while the the rest are kind of left to face these rising costs and issues. Absolutely. And I think it is very much emblematic of the real world. It is this idea of the 1% versus the 99%, maybe not literally that, but at least symbolically, that's the idea, especially when you look at how the wages are distributed. And when you look at the shows being picked up and produced, and obviously now we're seeing uh, perhaps a a better trend, but over the past decade, most shows that were on the air were uh, shepherded by the same dozen producers and not really that lower mid-tier producer levels and up-and-coming writers that were not really given the shot to showrun or produce or create. And that's in part because of the whole IP of it all. It's all kind of connected. I'm sure we could talk about it for an hour, but I I do think it's uh, emblematic of the problem at the core of this industry right now. Yeah, to me, it feels like they're kind of forcing TV into the same box that feature film has been for some time now where it really is those gigantic names of directors and producers like your Spielbergs and that kind of thing who are getting to do these huge franchises and whatever. Now, obviously there are the the up and coming and exciting directors who they allow to have a shot at something and then take them off and put on another director at the end when they realize they're not happy with it. But you know, the, one of the things that's always been brilliant about TV is the kind of the democracy of it all. And if someone has a fantastic idea for a TV show and they have experience in a room and that kind of thing, we can find our next Aaron Sorkin or our next Shonda Rhimes or whatever coming up through that. So once you start to 
kind of create this autocratic system. You know, it's almost like they're turning writers into little mini studios in and of themselves. Whereas Absolutely. if you want to have a project made, it has to come through J.J. Abrams' banner. We already have this whole pod system of overall deals on a smaller level. They're now kind of turning them into bigger and bigger things where maybe whoever he ends up with, I believe, is being courted by Disney, Universal, and Warner Brothers. Whoever he kind of ends up with there isn't going to look at a sci-fi genre TV project unless it comes through their J.J. Abrams banner. Yeah, and again, to your point and what I was saying earlier, TV is a team sport. That's what a writer's room is. It's not really a one-person job, lest we forget a true detective. But uh, overall, it is still a team sport. And all those people, they work their way up to where they are now. And the idea that it's only going to be these people from now on producing the, all the content, it's kind of like Disney buying out every studio and you know developing only Disney shows. Because you know as we both know, in the future, movies are going to be called Disney's. Uh, but <laughs> either way... I, I do agree with the, the sentiment that these people are not becoming sort of pods in of themselves and studios in of themselves, which is problematic in a way because TV, like you said, is a democratic medium. It's meant to be everybody helping each other. Now, obviously, there's major problems in writers' rooms. That, that you know, I'm not sugarcoating that. I'm just saying that uh, ideally, that's the idea: is people move up the ladder as opposed to a feature film that has a director and a screenwriter, and those are very set roles for a very specific amount of time for one singular project, uh, not something that spans years and years of development and production. All right, what's the next article we're looking at? Well, the next article we're going to be looking at is Channing Dungey's departure from ABC. And Channing was the president of ABC since 2016. And she's actually the fourth major uh, broadcast network president to leave because we obviously had Moonves earlier this year. But also in the past year, Bob Greenblatt left NBC and Walden and Newman also left Fox. So there's a lot of changes in the past year on all major broadcast networks, which is interesting to look at. Now, also interesting is the fact that she will be replaced by Carrie Burke, who is a programming executive from Freeform. And Burke will become the fourth person in eight years to hold the title of president of ABC Entertainment. Yeah, there's a lot of turner for these networks right now. I mean, obviously, especially with ABC and the whole Fox-Disney merger, there's a lot of changes coming there. Uh, I believe Dana Walden from Fox is now going to be heading up Disney, essentially, ABC Disney, and kind of crossing those streams there. So just a lot of tumultuousness and uncertainty in terms of who's going to be where in what networks and how this is all going to kind of work in the industry moving forward. Yeah, on top of that, I mean, we just talked about it with the overall deals. A lot of those top-level creatives from ABC are leaving the network. Yeah, we had Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris both leaving for deals with Netflix. And so those were really the big money makers at ABC. They were single-handedly responsible for reinvigorating their slate of programming and, and really driving a lot of the success of ABC. So I think they have a big challenge ahead of them in terms of what ABC's uh, identity is now as a network. Obviously, they're still going to have those couple of shows that were created while they were there. But uh, you know, what are they going to be doing moving forward? And how does that exist under the new kind of Fox leadership as well? Yeah, and I feel like that's just like history repeating itself because ABC was in a turmoil about 15 years ago before Lost and Desperate Housewives were a thing. So I feel like every decade or so, every network has to reinvent itself and redefine itself. Maybe CBS is one of the only networks that has had sort of this consistent brand uh, over the past uh, few decades. But that's probably because they've had such long-running shows and targeting such an older audience uh, right. like the other networks. It's honestly really kind of brilliant because no one else is going for the over 55 demographic on network TV. It's CBS and they've got it in the hole and they get the gigantic ratings and consistency 
Lindsay Fromm and everyone else, you know, Fox, NBC, ABC are all competing for that same 18 to 39 or whatever it is slot. And, um, you know, you're going to have to constantly change to get the attention of these ever shifting generations. Yeah. We'll have to see how the whole Disney Fox thing also pans out on digital landscape because Disney plus was recently officially announced as it's programming. There's a lot of star Wars properties being developed for the network. There's a lot of Marvel properties also being developed for the network. So yeah, that's, uh, huge. you know, I think you're going to see a lot less of these agents of shield and those type of shows coming through ABC itself. And it's all just going to go directly to Disney plus. Yeah, linear TV is going the way of dinosaurs, I guess. <laughs> we shall see. All right, that wraps up our paper class for November. And before we go, just a reminder that our paper tease competition is still open for submissions and will be until the start of March. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, and when we say format, we do mean still a teaser. Uh, it can just be, you know, a cop show. It can be a, a sci-fi. It can be whatever you want. Or a comedy. Any genre, comedy, exactly. Uh, and you can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air from us and be eligible for that PT mentorship we'll be doing next year. So thanks for taking the time to tune in and listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode as well as all the teasers reviewed at paperteamalco slash 113. And if you want to leave us a review, that would be amazing. I think right now we're sitting on like 59 ratings and 29 reviews. So if someone could just go in there and give us one rating and one review, it would really help my OCPD. Uh, <laughs> Oof, so close, so close. <laughs> and you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All of those will help us find new listeners and build our community. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes or questions, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we are talking to special guest Sinke Lee, who is a TV writer for Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It TV show on Netflix, now in its second season, and has also been an indie filmmaker for much of his life and has some really interesting stories to share with us. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be a really interesting interview. So tune in for that next week. All right, we'll catch you guys then.